Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by professional triathlete and 2012 Ironman world champion, Pete Jacobs. Pete, straight out of the gate, I just have to ask you about that day at the Ironman World Championships in 2012 because that was honestly like one of my favorite races ever just because I don't think there's ever been a more dominant performance in Kona. And honestly, until recently with some of the stuff that like that Jan, Fredino and like I've seen with the, the Norwegians, I, I, I would always talk about that as the most dis, like dominant display of triathlon I've ever seen um, your performance at the 2012 Ironman World Championships. <laughs> I just don't, I honestly don't think anyone else was ever winning that day. Like every time I reflect on it, I just look at it and go, that was Pete's day. Like no one was taking that away from him. Can you sort of start the podcast by just taking me inside that? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. I've listened to a lot of episodes. Nice to be a guest. Um, I've gotten a lot from, from yeah, past guests. So hopefully I can offer something as well. Um, so for that, that race, yeah, I still get chills when I watch back the videos that, um, you know, ASICS that I was working with at the time, sponsored by at the time, made some good videos and interviews before the race. And and listening back and watching those interviews, it, it you know, it does give me chills. That I, I was very sure, as you said, I was I was sure that that's how it was going to go. Um, second the year before, and so for 360-odd days, I'd focused just on winning, um, doing everything that I could, that little bit more than I did the previous year. And in those pre-race interviews, I was, yeah, very calm. And just the, the quotes that I sort of said there, like, was sort of along the lines of, it's not rocket science. I've, I've done the work. I just need to not do anything stupid on race day and make the right decisions. Um, so in my mind, it was, I'd visualized, I'd had trigger word. Uh, love was the trigger word to just get me uh, present and focused and calm and confident. So you do make the right decisions. Um, so I'd done all that in training. So I really did feel like a, a bit of a, you know, dress rehearsal was coming up. It wasn't like it was the the main thing. And I just love that energy of Kona. Like I, I really miss it. I hope to get back there, you know, one day um, for sure. And, but yeah, definitely miss Kona, that energy around it. So leading into it, I'd done everything. I was fitter. I was feeling good. I was confident and I was calm. So it was just about literally that just make the right decisions on race day and, and not stuff up because you've done all the training on race day. It's, it's just head. It's just all in your head. So I was, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's, that's what led into it. Just looking back and that that's my experience is looking back at those days and the finish line speech talking about how, how grateful I was at the, the finish line and love being the trigger word had made me grateful for so much that that's, that's how the race felt. I was, I was just very grateful to be there and be in great shape and did my best. And at that stage in your life, what was making you so good at the sport? What, what made, like, what made you so certain that you were going to show up that day and win? And, and, and what made you the athlete who could have that kind of dominant, dominant performance at the hardest day in triathlon? Good question. Uh, Um, if, if you agree with that statement, that is, um, but yeah, for, to answer it in, in the best I can is that I was doing very similar to what I'd done the year before when I got second. And um, the year before, Crowey went 806 and I went 809. So it was a pretty quick year. At that time, I think it was the record that Crowey went 806. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that was, that was a confidence builder that, okay, what I'm doing is working. The training that I do works. So I pretty much did very, very similar the following year. Uh, however, I did it in a different location. I, I was up here in Noosa doing that lead up. Um, so that definitely helped to get out for those longer rides. And, and I just trained on my own uh, as I'd always done. And I know that that's what works for Ironman. You go out on the bike ride, you ride as solid as you can for five hours. And then you basically do that another couple of times during the week. And then you run 80 to 100K a week. And two of those were efforts that I'd done the exact same program pretty much the previous year. It was out of a book. Um, and so I knew that that's what got me fit. I knew that that's sort of what I could tolerate. And I probably just, I, like I said, I, I looked after myself a little bit more the year before my guts were still quite an issue, like going to the bathroom two or three times before going out the door. So I wouldn't have been absorbing as, as much good nutrition. Uh, the year before. So, you know, just taking some supplements to help fix my gut, um, probably resting better. I was getting a massage weekly by a guy that 
you know, lived around the corner from where I was living at the time in Noosa. Um, and he was really good. That was a really, you know, weekly Monday thing, never trained on Monday, always just recovery. And yeah, I just had a routine that I'd followed for years, but was able just to add, you know, a few more percent on top of it by, I guess, looking after myself and, and being focused on the win. When you, when you, I guess when I was younger, it was always, you know, oh, I believe I can be good enough. You know, for my first Ironman at 20 years old, I thought, oh yeah, I can, I, I can be good at this. And then from that point on, it was like, well, I think I can be best in the world at this, but it was just a belief. It was just one of those things like, oh, it's a dream. That'd be nice. But it wasn't until I got second where I got serious and went, you know what? I really want to win now. And it's like, okay, well, if I, if I want this to happen, how do I make it happen? Not just a bit of a, uh, you know, flight of fancy, just like, oh, that'd be nice. And I think, I think I'm good enough. Um, so that's what changed a little bit in that final 12 months as well. Um, but yeah, it was just accumulation of, of finding a routine that really worked for me and then having belief that what I was doing for me was the best thing for me. And yeah, having been to Kona many times before, you know, I guess genetically I've got some advantages maybe over others for endurance and heat, <laughs> but yeah, it was also a lot of work. And um, how did you figure out that like that plan, that schedule that worked for you? You said you got it from a book. I don't whether you mean like you literally just picked a book up off the bookshelf and started copying it, or or uh... yeah, yeah, for the running that was it. Yeah, it was literally a, a book that anyone can buy on Amazon, and that was the that was the program that I followed pretty much. Yeah, and how how about the rest of your program? Like, how did you how did you figure out the swim, ride, run, and life balance um, that worked best for you? Was it just you know, was it those sort of years of, of practice in the lead up where you got everything wrong and finally figured it out? Or was it a person that helped influence it or a coach or, or what happened? Um, yeah, lots of factors. Um, definitely figuring out what I couldn't do. Um, you know, since I was young, I struggled with fatigue and that just couldn't get my heart rate up when the fatigue hit. So, you know, massive mystery, seeing lots of people, lots of doctors, lots of, lots of other um yeah, just people trying to help, help heal me. And none of that ever really worked. The only thing that worked was to not overtrain and look after myself better, um, better recovery, rest when I needed the rest. And big part of that was learning to control ego, which is why one of the reasons I like training on my own, because I, I couldn't have ego in training because if I ended up pushing that little bit harder than what was still in my comfort zone, that would put me in a hole. If I went a little bit further or didn't stop when I needed to stop, um, all of those things. So learning my body's limits over time. And then the motto was for 2012, one of the mottos was pretty much that I turned my weakness of not being able to train as much as everyone else. I turned that into my strength by acknowledging that my weakness was that I can't do as much as everyone. I can't train as much as everyone. So that became a confidence factor when I was feeling tired some days in the, in those final three months of, of the lead up to Kona. And that's really when it only knuckled down. I really only worked hard in for those sort of three months leading up. And, but that would be the time when, um, like I said, if I had a day of fatigue, well, I'd sit on the wind trainer and like I did this morning and just spin at about 160 Watts. And, but back then, you know, when I was training for Kona in that block, it would be for four hours spinning easy. Cause I remember one specific day where it was that I did have the fatigue, but I still spun it out for six hours. And then by the time I got off the bike and ran, I felt great. And I had a really good 10 K run off the bike. So I learned to back myself, listen to my body, um, not to push it if it didn't want to be pushed. Um, and then from that, I was getting mental, uh, like mindset help from uh, a coach down in uh, Brisbane, Al Pittman. He's an old bloke and he's been to Kona many, many times. And um, so the mindset work about kind of metaphors to help build my confidence and help me visualize things. He put me onto his kinesiologist who also gave me some, um, you know, the trigger phrases to help build that visualization and, and presence and gratitude. Um, with that squad, our squad, I also did two really good time trials in the lead up to 2012 down in Brisbane, outside of Brisbane. So that was a, like 151 time and a, I don't know, it was probably about eight 1K runs off the bike. And then another time, maybe a few weeks later was a 100 
with a bunch of one Kers off the bike as well. So I did those in group in a squad, but it was all on my own. You know, everyone was basically doing their own time trial in their own space. Um, and they were all slower age group guys. So it wasn't, wasn't any sort of competition in those time trial efforts or anything. It was very much go at my own speed and, and figure it out for myself. Um, and then, uh, one of the other things you said, what was it? The, um, lifestyle. Yeah. Lifestyle. That's funny, funny word when you talk about lifestyle in the lead up to Kona, because, um, look, I, I didn't drink coffee at all until I was in after I was 30 and I won Kona at 30. Um, and so I didn't, I would never go to a coffee shop partly because I didn't drink coffee, but partly because I knew that if I had a spare minute, I was at home with my feet up doing foam rolling, doing stretching, just eating, recovering, drinking electrolytes, having a nap. You know, I, honestly, that's a big dig that I'll have at the modern era of young, uh, you know, professional athletes is, you know, it's all the gram, you know, let's let all just hanging out and having coffees and yeah, lifestyle is one thing but when you got to lock it away and put in those miles for for months at a time um your body's going to be right on that limit and you got to be home having a nap recovering with hydro electrolytes not sitting there having something that's going to dehydrate you more and sit there in a chair instead of doing good hip stretches and all of that stuff so many reasons why so i never sat at a coffee shop didn't go out to dinner with jamie for like you know the last couple of months you know, it was really just put the blinkers on. And for me, that's what worked really well. And I'll say for me, because everyone's different, but the, the idea of sacrifice is what motivated me. Um, so every time that I sacrificed something, be it like ice cream, be it, you know, going out to dinner, be it hanging with friends, doing something else that actually made me happy because it reminded me of my goal. And, and that was a big part of just that, that three month block was every day was reminding myself of the goal, you know, a dozen times there wasn't, cause there was no time where it was switching off and completely forgetting about that goal. It was, you know, 24 hours a day was what do I need to do to get my body in the best shape and my mind in the best shape for tomorrow, for next week and for the ultimate goal. And then you get to Kona. And can you sort of walk me through what, what's happening in that week or three weeks or however long you're there for when you're going in off that preparation and rid that mindset that you're there to win? Uh, yeah, I always get there about just under two weeks. So sort of around 10, 11 days out usually. Um, I don't do huge training once I get there and I, and I fully understand why now, you know, watching other guys totally stuff it up a bit. You know, too much time in the heat will overcook you, um, especially if you're still trying to do in your big mileage. So I would, I, in my mind, it worked out great. I'd do my biggest week about three weeks out. Um, and then basically then I'd pack for a week and, and do all of that running around. And then I'd be over there in Kona. So for me, it just worked out perfect to not try and squeeze a heap of work and packing and organizing into what would be also the biggest week out, three, four weeks out from the race. So that, that was my, um, routine and I, and I liked it. It really worked. I was confident in it. And as, as, as you hear in these, uh, interviews from everyone, if you believe it, well, that's all that matters. You know, if, if it gives you confidence, that's the best thing for you, unless it's a really stupid thing, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would get there and look, I wouldn't do a lot of training. I would swim as much as I could, like most days in the ocean. I never went to the swimming pool ever. <laughs> like. The swimming pool in Kona, I think I've been to about once or twice. And I don't think it was even ever in race week of Kona. It was like when I've been there for a training camp or um, the half Ironman or something like I'm very unfamiliar with the swimming pool there in Kona. So I would swim in the ocean uh, only and I jog very little. And in the week before the race, I got down to a routine. Um, basically, I would run about a week before and maybe 45 minutes to an hour. I would run again, maybe about Wednesday. And then I would do like a little 15 minute jog, you know, two days out. So maybe Thursday, I guess. Um, but that would be it. My total run, run volume for like seven days leading into the race would be less than two hours. Um, that's something that's always worked for me because, and I understand why, but I don't want to get into all those details and that now, but for my body that worked well. And, um, 
yeah, otherwise there'd be a little, a few commitments and, and sponsorship stuff and all of that. And honestly, looking back now, I know sponsors really like it and athletes do say, oh, I've got to give back. I've got to give back. But, you know, if you're, if you're there to perform at your very best in a very stressful thing, you know, I'd be tempted to say no to absolutely everything. You know, I, I wouldn't say no, but I would want to say no, because like I just said, in, in the, in the three months before I haven't sat around at a coffee shop or like chatted to people and been social, like, so to do it race week doesn't really make sense. Um, if I believe the best thing for me is to be at home doing more mobility, doing more napping, just have my legs up, just having more electrolytes and, you know, just doing other things or actually, you know, cause standing around and sitting around is very different to exercising. Once you've got the blood flow up and you've got blood flowing and everything, then your legs aren't going to get swollen. You're not going to, you're getting all the lymph and blood flow. Um, but it's very different to sitting and not moving with your feet lower. And, you know, I found, I find that that, that really affects me. And, um, yeah, so anyway, it, it all worked out for the best in, um, 2012 but i certainly didn't do a lot of commitments that's for sure then you wake up on weight on race morning what, what's that like waking up on on race morning at kona the biggest day in triathlon i think very arguably the hardest single day in, in world sport as the pre-race favorite with the mindset that that i'm here to win and i know that if i perform at my best today i can win what's that like what how do you sleep the night before are you nervous what are you feeling what what's What's everything that's going through your head? And then, and then on top of that, what do you actually do? What's your, what's your routine on, on race morning? Um, well, how it feels is, I guess it, it's, it's kind of bliss. I love it. Um, it's partly the, you know, that you're in such a special place like Kona. Um, I'm really calm and relaxed there. I love the vibe of the race. Um, and race morning is just, you know, my family's all there. Um, Usually, you know, we jump in a car and drive there and it's all pretty quiet. We just have some nice tunes on in the, in the car, but it's only usually about a five minute drive. Um, and then, yeah, you just, you just, you're, you're kind of on autopilot. You go through, you get your, you, you drop your special needs bags, then you go get your number stamped and you, you're just sort of saying hi to everyone with a quiet smile and a quiet high. And, you know, everyone's pretty mellow and, and chill. And it's just bliss. Like, it's just this feeling of, it's like this feeling of meditation. You're just so present that it's just pure calmness. Like, and then, then there's the bit of the pre-race time to kill. And I always hung with my family and all my friends and supporters, actually not near the King Cam, which is where all the pro area is and all the pros hang out. I'm over on the streets, actually in a little back alley, just near the corner of the finish line. And, um, just every year it just happened from one of the first years I went and then that just became the routine of the place that we would meet. And, um, so then it's a little bit nervous sort of sitting around, you know, you think if I got how long, how much longer, what's the time I'll go for a little jog, get my sunscreen on, get my suit and everything just sort of happens automatically. And then before you know it, it's sort of time to, um, go jump in the water. And, you know, when you say bye to your family, like it's so emotional. And I get emotional now just thinking of it because that, that morning in 2012 was, you know, really just emotional and, um, yeah, just a beautiful moment and, uh, lots of friends and family there. And then you walk away from them and that's it. You're off into this bliss of, all right, now it's me on my own and there's nothing to do. And that's, that's when it's really peaks when you walk into the water at, at the bay there and that that's it. There is literally nothing else to do. There's nothing on your mind. It's just, yeah, it's just as close as I'll get to enlightenment, you know, is that time on the, just between getting in the water and the gun going off is just amazing. Um, but what do I do? I guess I just mentioned what I do. Um, keep it pretty simple as I go through my bike, pump up the tires, say hi to a few people that are around you and, yeah, it's all pretty low key and chill. And, and then I'm out of there and that's it. And then it's all pretty, it is pretty quiet, except for the words um, that we speak amongst, you know, family and friends just before the race. And uh, yeah, that's it. But yeah, like I say, I can't, I get emotional thinking of it because it's such a, such a powerful present moment. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I'm sitting here just thinking like, um, geez, I wish I could uh, feel that. And I bet you that's what a lot of people are sort of thinking is like, or they're relating it to, to something they felt as well. 
Um, but that's, yeah, it's, uh, it's like weirdly spiritual in a way, isn't it? It's, uh, mm. I'm reading a book now at the moment all about flow state. Um, and it's a really good book and it goes into a lot of different layers of, of different ways to describe flow state. And, um, yeah, it's the beginning of flow state and, and being present is part of a big part of that state of, you know, allowing your body to perform at its best requires you to be present. And, you know, that's what I trained and that's what Kona does. And that's how I felt throughout the whole race. And then what about during the race? How does that go when you're, when you're having sort of like from what, well, from the outside looking in, it, it appears like you're having the day of your life. It was, like I said, like, I, I just remember thinking like Kona is a, at that, that particular day, you know, like a, an eight hour, 15 minute race. I remember watching that thinking about an hour and 10 minutes in, oh, Pete's, Pete's won here. And it just, it just looked that <laughs> obvious to me. And, and it just got more and more and more and more obvious the longer the day went. Were you feeling that as well? Or like, can you take me through the actual, the actual race? Yeah, yeah, I felt it. I felt good. When the gun went off, I felt good. Um, within a few hundred meters, I'm in a good spot. I'm probably sitting about six spot. It's sort of the, the front pack is two by two by two. Um, and I'm, and I'm halfway down that big group. Um, and then we, as we turn the, and I'm breathing every, I remember breathing every three for most of it. And that was a big thing. And, and now I know why, like I was that fit and comfortable and relaxed that yet yeah, breathing every three. And there's also good, there's also really good benefits to breathing every three as well. Cause if you end up having a fast stroke rate, which I don't anyway, but you can end up basically hyperventilating if you end up stroking too quickly, if you're panicking in a, in a group mass, uh, swim. Um, anyway, so I got round to the turnaround, the boat at halfway. And that was when I looked around and thought, oh, you know what? There's still a lot of people kind of in this front group. And there's a tiny bit of a gap on like my feet or the person behind me, there's a, there's not someone next to me. So if I move up onto the guy's hip in front of me, they'll, that'll quickly open up a couple of meters to the person who's behind me. And so I did that and I was like, just testing it. And I was like, all right, well, let's move up. So I did a little bit of an effort, moved up. And, um, you know, at the end of the race or days in the days following, I find out, you know, that was basically Rayla and Macca that got dropped because of that little move that I did at halfway in the swim. And yeah, so to be little things like that, that just being present and, but actually, you know, like I say, racing it still, still wanting to drop people, still thinking, how do I make people hurt, um, worked in the swim and then you know, the bike ride was, yeah, felt good on the ride. Um, the previous year I'd missed the split and I'm not even sure if I could have gone with it, but I missed the split and, and dropped off and lost a lot of time. I wasn't going to get miss the split this time on the bike. So, you know, it was Luke McKenzie and, and a few others that started to go probably about Waikoloa, about 45K in. And I'd gotten a penalty a couple of years before trying to pass Crowey it was. Um, but because we, it was undulating and I'd tried to pass sort of at the top of the hill. And as you hit kind of critical speed, I couldn't get around him because I couldn't physically go any faster. And I got a penalty for staying wide too long. And that's when I got ninth in 2010. And yeah, that's just, you know, not being patient, not reading the situation properly and all of those sorts of things. So I was much, much more patient. I was much clearer in my decision-making, uh, in 2012 picked the time to go, picked the time. And it was, again, it was Crowey that I went round. He was opening up that little gap to the guys in front, which is probably four or five of them. And his back, you know, you've interviewed him, his back wasn't great. So he was feeling a little bit weaker. And yeah, no one went round Crowey, as, as he said in his interview with you too. Like everyone's looking at him going, oh, well, he's a, you're the defending champ. We'll just do what you're doing. And then that allowed myself and a few others to get away. And then I felt really good. I even broke away on the, from the whole group and was leading the race, heading up towards the bottom of the Harvey climb. And then Voanaka came past me and then Sebastian Keenley came past me and Seb got a flat tire probably, um, on the way back down along that section. Uh, but yeah, Voanaka had a eight minute lead off the bike and I was second off the bike. And again, that the group that I was in came back together. I had a little bit of a low spell where I thought, okay, I'll just sit in. Um, it was right around the the lookout, which is again, probably about 40 Ks to go or something. Um, 
And I just sat in behind the group on the hill on a few of the undulations. And then I think it was on maybe on the uphill where I started to find my rhythm again. And I started to go back to the front of that little group of probably three at the time. And then, yeah, dropped the rest of that group coming into town, eight minutes behind Volnacker. And then all the training that I'd done, I knew that my back gets tight off, off the bike in the first, you know, several kilometers. At some point, my back was going to get tight. So that's where being present and making the right decisions really worked because I was still about seven and a half minutes down from Volnacker by about 6K in. And, but my back then started to get tight and I stopped and did my lunges, my hip stretches that I knew released my back and, you know, to have looking back and that that's the training. That was the mindset of be, be present, make the right decisions. That's going to get you from A to B at the best possible time frame. not rush it, not carry tension, not push through it, not no pain, no gain, no limits or any of that BS. It was let's settle down and make the right call. And yeah, I gave up what 20, 20 seconds, maybe if to do a few lunges, 30 seconds, maybe. And then I, I was still not chipping away at his lead. And I started to, when we came back through town and I'm starting to think, Oh, you know what? He's the current world record holder. It's just not my day. It's his day. And I start to reside myself that, you know, I'm not going to catch him. And then literally, I think by the time I got to the top of, um, Polani, which is onto the Queen K Highway, which is the next big section of hot, hard running. I got word that he's 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 blowing, and within about two or three kilometers, his seven minute lead went to about to nothing. I was in the lead by about halfway, and um, I had a five minute lead over the next group, Raylet, and knew that I just had to get to the finish line without blowing up. So basically, you know, just jogged it. I was confident that people don't ever run faster in the back end of a, a marathon. Like it just does not happen in an Ironman. No one negative splits a, an Ironman. And so I just knew that if I had five minutes now, I was going to be able to keep five minutes if I, as long as I didn't blow up. Um, so I took my time and yeah, it was awesome to be able to celebrate and be relaxed over that last sort of, I don't know, five, six kilometers. It was pretty much, yeah, it, I've got this and um, yeah, the rest is history. Something I didn't ask Macca and Crowey when I had them on for episodes, but then later thought, like, I, I would wish I had have asked them that. But luckily I have you because you're another guy who's won this race. Um, <laughs> what is it like that last last kilometre running down through that, like, sort of like um, avenue of people with with uh, the, the local Hawaiian man running in front of you and then crossing the line as, as, as the world champion in, in Kona? What's that like? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's probably like trying to explain what it feels like to jump out of a plane or something. It's, um, oh, I just say, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, like being a, being a kid on Christmas day times a thousand, you know, a little kid getting the best present ever, but yeah, just times a thousand, um, just pure, pure bliss and joy. Um, and, and, and being able to relax and enjoy it. It was that feeling the year before when I got second, I'd battled with Raylet. I'd been in the most pain I've ever been in in the final 10 kilometers and was able to overcome that by really digging deep into that, the zone, into the flow and, and putting that pain out of my mind. It was really emotional when I crossed the finish line to be like, oh my God, the relief and the, the built up pain that now I can just totally forget about. Yeah. But when, when I finished in 2012, it was just pure bliss. Um, not, yeah, just joy. It wasn't like any other sort of emotion, really just, just pure joy. And I mean, I guess after that, what's it like when you've, you've achieved that big goal and that big dream that you've probably always had um, in the days after, the weeks after, you know, even the years after? What, what did that, that day and that moment do to your life? Yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not something that I guess I don't thoroughly enjoy that aspect of it so much. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, yeah, I guess back in the day, it was like, honestly, oh, like I wasn't even, there was no Instagram. Instagram, I think was just starting up around 2012. So I wasn't on it yet. I'm always a bit of a slow, slow to pick up these things. <laughs> and um, so to give some perspective of, of what it was like, but it was still, you know, magazine photo shoots and, and then looking at what races people want you to go and do and, and um, those sorts of opportunities. But yeah, it didn't, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm a homebody. I like training at home. I like being at home. Um, you know, I don't, I don't live for fancy things so much. I, I enjoy them, but 
yeah, it was, it was more, um, more just, I want to just keep doing that. I just want to keep trying to replicate that over and over again. Cause the whole point of going to Kona for me is to, to find the limits of my body, to, to figure out what can I do with it and what can I learn from it? What can I, what can I experience? And, and, and reading this book about flow state, actually, it says that that's what people, that's what people draws them back, whether it's a, a whether it's some drugs or whether it's a adrenaline sport or whether it's whatever it is, it's they actually crave this flow state once you've experienced it. And I think that's what I, that's what I like. And as well, it's a form of this enlightenment feeling of just being so present. And um, it's like that enlightenment of meditation that, you know, very few monks would ever experience, but getting it through when you're, when you like doing it through sport, um, yes, that's definitely something that I still crave and still something that I'm trying to train myself for. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I'd do Kona for. And then I guess like my big question from there is at that point in time in the sport, you were like, like I said, that was literally the most dominant performance I'd, I'd seen in, in Kona. And I think that's saying a bit because the year before Crowey, who, you know, was my idol had, had a really dominant performance and, um, and, and then he I was cramping. Oh, if he'd cramped a little bit more, I might have got him. Or if I'd if I'd <laughs> ridden a few minutes quicker, I might have been closer. Because uh, yeah, he was cramping in those line, final kilometers. And yeah. Um, but yeah, he still had like actually what I think I said eight oh six. I think maybe he went eight oh three. I went eight oh nine. I think there was about six minutes between us. Maybe yeah. Um, yeah, yeah yeah. He went he went he went eight oh three. I'm pretty sure you went eight oh nine. Yeah yeah. There was six minutes between us. Yeah yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I reckon that actually does get a bit underrated your performance uh, the year before as well. It sort of doesn't get talked about that much, I don't think. And I don't even think it really did at the time. I don't think it fully got the credit it deserved at the time, at least at least from where I stood, um, especially when compared to the next year when you won, which which got a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, um, there was a lot of hype around that and, and everyone was sort of talking about it. Did you feel that as well? Or is that is that not how it felt from your perspective? Um, Oh yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a kid from Australia. Like, Australia's not on the global scene of triathlon um, until, unless, except for guys that are racing in America and kind of bigger names like Crowey and Macca were. They won, they'd won the biggest races in America for years. So you know, they'd won a lot of races. I haven't even won that many races. Um, so they're just bigger names in triathlon, and you know that's that's fine by me. It's just the way of the world. It is just the way that that things roll. Um, so I didn't mind, you know, being underrated or, or still being underrated. Um, I'm happy to be underrated. I would still, I still want to come back and show, like I say, I don't want to show anyone. It's more, I want to just do what we're doing here, which is share my experiences and what I've learned and what I can still learn by going out there and doing it again. And then, for me, learning and experiencing that, but then being able to pass on what I've learned and experienced through that process as well is, you know, I, I'm a, in a way I'd rather, it's more of a, it's more of a researcher role than an athlete role, I guess, you know, it's, it's wanting to know why and how and, and share that rather than actually just do it for myself to be known as, you know, the best, um, you know, that's not what interests me or, um, not what I'm striving for. Yeah. Okay. So I do want to talk about this because since that day in 2012, like, I mean, you still had a couple of good performances. You, you definitely have, and you, you've still won races after that, but it, it does sort of seem like you went from being a dominant force on the, on the world stage in triathlon every time you're on a start line to, to sort of not even really being involved in the sport that much anymore. What, what sort of happened after that, that day and, um, and, and then in like the, the following years to, to get you to where you are right now, like take me through the, the, the journey since then. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, I had struggled with those days of fatigue since I was young. I had days and months of fatigue in my twenties. And then after I was 30, it, and you know, symptoms are always changing. And then what, 2013, I was in really good shape you know, my fitness was great. Um, went out and wrote, went really well at 70.3 sunny coast and won that. Um, but yeah, but my lower back on my, you know, just above my glute was a bit weak and funny. And so, yeah, come the race in 2013, like I was not happy with it. I wasn't confident in it the entire time. And then in the race, yeah, I just ha didn't have the power, didn't feel good. 
Um, but this is all a symptom of when my body is like a, a sore back or a, a weak muscle or something, it's, it's a total symptom of that everything is not functioning as it should. My energy production capabilities are all a bit low, which is causing a whole bunch of symptoms, which, um, you know, mean I can't perform well through whatever reasons, um, all relating to energy, but whether it shows up in just general fatigue or a muscle weakness, um, those sorts of issues, depression and, and those other sorts of mental issues and brain fog. So that's, that just got worse. So instead of being maybe a day or a few days um, prior to being 30, once I was 30, it became weeks and then it became months. Um, but then once I'd recover, I'd bounce back and I'd be like, right, I can do this. And I'd train really well for six weeks and I'd get really fit and good in six weeks time and be ready to take on the world and then crash again and just have this, you know, fatigue. And so that was the roller coaster ever since, like literally, you know, most of my life's been that roller coaster. So yeah, I wasn't even before 2012, I wasn't having consistent results. Um, and again, it, it's not, it's not something that I regret, but it just certainly brings me back to the, the passion that I have for wanting to be the researcher, the being able to explain to people, this is what's happening in your body. So other people don't go through what I've gone through so that we can avoid that as quickly as we can and help people understand their body. And this has been, you know, 20 years of, of issues or longer actually, but 20 years of thinking about it, 10 years of not really learning much. And then five years of learning a bit from other people. And then the last few years of learning more, more intricate details, putting it all together. And then like even just, it's been the last six months where I can now really have a, a, an approach to how the body works that um, explains everything. And that's how, that's why right now I'm running 100, 100 and something K run weeks um, at the moment, training for a 50 K ultra. And then on the back of the 50 K ultra in the end of March, and I'm hoping to build up then to, to Cairns and have a comeback. And I, I think it's been since 2018 or 17, since I did a Ironman. Um, and I think I DNF'd that one anyway. And so I took 2018, I didn't race at all. I took that year completely off. 2019, I got back into racing halves um, and just raced a bunch overseas. Um, you know, just going across to the, the races, the 70.3s that were in China. 2020 um first race of 2020 was a, a little half ironman down the road um luke mckenzie won it and i think i got second or third i had a bit of i just i blew up anyway i didn't feel good um but my heel got a lot of serious pain just after that race and so and then COVID hit like in the weeks after so it was kind of fortuitous that my heel was terrible but then COVID shut everything down so that meant okay, my heel's terrible. I don't have to have a reason why I'm not racing. I'm just not racing because of COVID. However, my heel pain was just terrible and it hung around for 18 months or more. And it's still there a little bit, but only recently have I figured out why it's there and how I'm able to now be running 100K run weeks and it, it actually still improving a little bit while I'm, I'm running a lot. And um, so that's the journey of this constant, what's happening, what can I learn from it? How do I implement it? And how do I piece all of these things together so that I can avoid any of this happening again, avoid anything getting worse. And still, like I said, in the back of my mind, I want to, I'm not in the back of my mind, the forefront of my mind is I, I want to run a quicker marathon than I've ever run in an Ironman. And that means, you know, my quickest in Kona is a 241. So in Cairns, my goal is to, to break 240. Um, and then if that goes well, then it's, think about Kona seriously and think about going back there um, end of end of this year, which sounds crazy. <laughs> and so can you talk to me about this sort of approach that you have figured out that, that works for you? Because like I, I, I hear what you're saying, but it is a little bit vague and I, I would I would just personally love to love to know a few more details. Um, could we maybe talk about your experience with it and what you felt was um, holding you back or what were your issues over time that you've now realized and, and what you've done to change them? Yeah. All right. So I would say for me and a lot of people, it'll start with noticing that your digestion's not very good. Like you're getting a bit of IBS, um, 
maybe maybe some serious IBS, uh, maybe you're getting some skin issues like I had skin issues um, and just general fatigue and unexplained fatigue and no blood test really shows anything, nothing shows anything. anything. Um, you start with that and then you go, okay, well, the, the next phase is, okay, there's a problem in the gut and then the gut causes means that you're not absorbing things very well, like nutrition very well. So for me, then a whole heap of stuff was getting through my intestines. So that means, you know, I'm very sensitive and still am to lactose and gluten and other lectins and oxalates. I keep very moderate as well. Um, so basically a lot of stuff gets through into my blood. So then that once it's in the blood, then it causes inflammation, which then causes those other inflammatory issues, be it brain fog, be it not being as aerobic. So let's imagine you've just gone and eaten Christmas lunch. How do you feel afterwards? Mm, bit tired. Why? Because you've just put so much stuff into your blood, be it blood sugars and insulin, be it proteins, be it um, gluten, whatever it is, be it lactose, which is a huge one as well. All these things end up in your blood, which reduces the capacity of your blood to deliver oxygen, which also can cause um, the stuff like lactose, gluten, all of that can also cause inflammation in the cell wall itself. So that's a big part of it. So you've got to change what you eat is the first thing. The other part is um, recognizing when you do have inflammation to not then go and push. And that's what I did really well is, and I didn't know why, but I listened to my body and it worked because once you do feel tired, that means the energy is not being produced efficiently. If you feel a little bit of fatigue, if you don't feel as aerobic as you normally do when you go and exercise or when you just walk the dogs or whatever, then it's literally that you are not producing energy as efficiently as you were previously. And that just means there's, there's things going on in your body. There's too much of stuff in your body, be it hormonally, be it, um, like I say, the, the food that's gotten into the blood, be it other factors, um, that is affecting it. And so you, if you, at that point go and try to exercise hard, or even exercise like at, a, at your normal level, because you're not producing energy as efficiently, you're creating more stress. And I've listened on your podcast, Jack, to quite a few guys that have done exactly that, where they've not felt great. They've said, yeah, I know that things weren't feeling good. I wasn't hitting the numbers. And yet they still went and tried to hit the same numbers to still be that same energy output but their aerobic threshold was way lower because they had this residual fatigue. And so if you recognize that you've got residual fatigue and basically if you try to push up against that at your normal level, you're now being much more anaerobic than you were like a week ago when you felt great. So you're literally detraining your mitochondria. You're being anaerobic. So it's as if you're going out and running, you know, max efforts uphill but you're actually just doing your normal, you know, let's say you're doing like a, a 60 minute time trial, but the stress that's going to occur when you've haven't got good energy production and is going to compound how much stress is then produced after that session. And you get stuck in this cycle. And if you don't recognize what's happening in the cycle, which, you know, you can solve it a few ways, or there's a few factors that help, high electrolytes help because when you're producing energy, you're using up a lot of electrolytes. When you're dealing with load in the blood from foods and other factors, and you're trying to balance out the acidity and you're trying to balance out the digestion and all of those things uses up a lot of electrolytes. So athletes think electrolytes are just because we sweat. No, electrolytes are there be are needed because this constant load to balance out our body and be used up in energy production. So as soon as someone starts taking electrolytes, they start to feel better. Generally, um, it helps out their blood and balancing their blood better. It then there's in decrease all the inflammatory foods, eat cleaner. So the cleaner, you, the closer you can eat to meat, fish and eggs, you know, you will generally feel better. A, it's got less inflammatory foods. B, it's the most nutrient dense. So you're getting the most nutrients for what you're consuming and it's all about nutrients every, every the reason that we eat is for nutrition and it's not about calories you know very rarely is it about calories if you eat enough nutrition 
in terms of for the vitamins, minerals, fats, and proteins that you need, well, then just as a byproduct, you'll be getting the calories that you need. You know, it's, it's not like you're not eating. Um, it's just about prioritizing the nutrient-dense foods to get the nutrition to balance out those factors that can cause fatigue and that breakdown in that path, those pathways. There's many, many pathways of energy production. But if you get low in some vitamins and electrolytes, other minerals, then that can be part of the problem. Um, so I told you not to get me started talking on this stuff. <laughs> I try to cram everything into like five minutes. It's not possible. Um, so that's basically it. There's a lot of factors and that's what I do now. I, I eat as clean as I can. I take supplements for, for vitamins and minerals. I um, don't train hard when I feel good. I go super easy just to get the blood flow. And on the days that I feel good, I push and I go up to that aerobic threshold, which will be, you know, a good 10, 15 seconds faster on a day that I feel good than on a day that I just feel okay. And so I make sure that I'm operating at that aerobic threshold as much as I can. And like I say, some days that aerobic threshold will be, you know, like five minute K pace running. Other days that aerobic threshold is um, three minutes 40. And yeah, so that's just about, that's how I trained when I was doing well. That's how I'm training now. Um, and yeah, but now I understand it more. So if there's more stress, if I, if I don't eat as well, I really up the supplements, um, up the minerals, up the electrolytes and the vitamins um, and those factors and get to bed early, listen to my body, those sorts of things. Yeah. Mate, I'm I'm just highly underqualified to to come back at you with discussion around this, but there is a few. Yeah, things good. I'm... Let's move on. It's probably a bit boring for everyone and confusing. It's really simple, but it's also really complex. The simple part is we just need to be more aerobic and adapt to being more aerobic. That's what I was doing on my own in in 2012. And to give people a really good takeaway of what worked is that I trained on my own and did many hours aerobic exercise. I was only doing two sessions of running that were actually like threshold and they weren't ridiculously quick. They were still fairly just upper end of aerobic, maybe touching on a little anaerobic, but, but nothing major. Um, but I was doing so many hours, like I said, probably 17 hours on the bike aerobically a week. None of that was efforts. None of that was anaerobic. So when you're doing so much aerobic adaptation, a little bit of anaerobic work is fine because you don't do enough to override the adaptation of what your mitochondria have just been trained for, for the aerobic energy production. Whereas if you're not doing 17 hours of aerobic bike work a week um, and you're doing two hard sprint workouts on the that are really anaerobic bike workouts, plus you're doing two hard run workouts plus you're doing two hard swim workouts well suddenly that sounds like you're doing about 50 percent of your week is really anaerobic work and i mean you can't sustain that for very long before you start to change the adaptation of your mitochondria to not being as aerobic and efficient and basically you need aerobic capacity for everything um anything over a 100 meter sprint you need aerobic capacity and that's what the Norwegians are doing so well is that they are training their aerobic capacity 365 days a year. When they do the lactate work, it is measured lactate. It's not just an all in all out effort. It's no force too high, go back to three. Um, that's measured. And that's just what I want to get across to people. Aerobic adaptation works and it's not about no limits or no pain, no gain or any of that stuff. Um, yeah, and you'll start to see and, and make sense of why people are doing well and better than others and why others are, are not doing as well and not being as consistent um, purely based on the aerobic adaptation that they do or do not have or, or what they're doing to undermine it. So put pretty simply, you're just a massive advocate for people training much easier than they do. And, and do you think that they should use uh, like external metrics for that? Like should everyone have a heart rate monitor and and – you know, um, jump. Yeah. On. The best, the best thing is a good thing for uh, advice for people. The best thing is breathing because breathing is the main driver of, or the main symptom of if you're being anaerobic or not. Um, which is why when I mentioned earlier about swimming, if you've got a really fast stroke rate and you're breathing quickly, you will actually be quite anaerobic because you're hyperventilating, which is lowering the oxygen delivery to your cells. 
So that's why some professional athletes that I know have actually had panic attacks in the swim and they've been swimming their entire life. But for this reason, for whatever reason, their stroke rate was quicker. They were breathing shorter and faster and they've had panic attacks in the swim because just low oxygen levels. Same thing if you go and exercise, if you're just walking, um, but you're, or whatever you're doing, if you're breathing rapidly, you're not building aerobic capacity because once there's so much carbon dioxide, which is the exhaust of the energy production gets in your blood, that makes your blood acidic, which acidity in the blood makes you breathe faster. So you're trying to get rid of the acidity in your blood through your lungs and you breathe rapidly. So that's the best marker of, are you being anaerobic is breathing. If you're bringing, if you can't control it, if you can't slow the exhale a little bit, well, that means that you're like, you're really, your blood is acidic now. That means there's less oxygen getting delivered. Um, breathing. So that's the main one. But once you get an idea of your metrics, like what heart rate is generally at that level, you can use it as a feedback system. Maybe it's tension as well. Mental and physical tension is also a great um, one to think about. So if you're, if you're starting to tense your traps or your mind is starting to say like, oh my God, how much longer, how much further? It's so hot. I don't like this. Once you get uncomfortable, though, that also that nervous system response will also be triggering you to be less aerobic. So, you know, I always encourage people to stop rest. Do not push through. There's no benefit to pushing through the, um, and that sort of tension. There's times and place to push through mental tension. There's times and place to train that tension, but you know, you get specific on just balancing that fine line between it's tough. I can overcome it. I'm relaxed. Oh, it's popping up again. I'm tense. I don't like this. Oh, I'm going to slow down a tiny bit. I'm overcoming it. And you can mentally train yourself to feel the pressure and then overcome it. But if it's just that constant pressure for like an hour of running, which this, this feels terrible. I don't like this. Well, you're not training your mindset for anything. You're training your body just to operate in this anaerobic tensed state. So yeah, finding that line and walking that line back and forth is, um, is a good place to be, um, or just stay completely comfortable for the entire session, you know? And so there's a time and place for different, different processes. And so Pete, like what, what my mind straight away goes to is, is like ego. Um, because I know like a big problem I've had a lot of people I know ha- have had, um, is that like we have Strava now and, and things like that, or we're, we're listening to podcasts where we're hearing what people are doing and, and we're constantly comparing ourselves to others or YouTube. Yeah. Or we think that <laughs> people are judging what we're doing. So, you know, we might hop on Strava and we might want our run to be, you know, 8.0 K at 4.59 per K rather than 7.64 K at, you know, 5.13 per K. Just yeah. purely based off ego and, and, and how it looks to other people or how we think it looks to other people or, or a little bit yeah, of insecurity. 100%. So how do, like, how do you balance that? Because I assume the thing you're describing right now means that a lot of people, um, particularly people in the, the running, cycling, triathlon world probably, um, uh, would have to dramatically change the way they train and go much slower uh, yeah, but, but probably don't want to it. do it. So, so how did that, like, <laughs> what's the way around that? Like, how, how do you talk someone off that, 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 you know, overtraining, doing things for the wrong reason ledge? Uh, well, you can't talk someone into something if they don't want to, you know, you can't, you can't convince someone that <laughs> a certain approach is the right one if they're not interested. But yeah, I had a guy, a client a while ago and um, he was just a runner and well, he, he had these little anxieties, little anxieties in home life, in work life, in everything, uh, in training as well. His identity was that he was a runner and everything went on Strava and this is how much he ran every day. And I said, how would it feel to run without your watch? And he went, oh, I'm getting anxious just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> so he ran without his watch. We got him to run without his watch for a week um, and he started, you know, more mindset practice, just, just being present when you're out running. And it is a mental... It's a, it's a meditation of blocking those thoughts of, oh, geez, my average is a bit low today. So-and-so might look at this and think I'm not fit today. Um, it's 100% blocking out all of that noise, which is ego. For a lot of people, they don't want to change what they're doing. They love that. Uh, that's the challenge, you know, comparing themselves to others, comparing themselves to how they were last week. Um, and that's fine if if that's your what's driving you. But if it's more... 
the health and long-term fitness that's kind of driving you, then, you know, ego needs to just take a back seat or at least be controlled somewhat. There's certainly a place for ego. Ego does motivate you. I mean, yeah, I've just recently joined Strava and putting up my runs and everything on Strava. And it is a little motivating to be like, oh, well, if people are looking at where I run, I might run a different route or I might just add on another couple of Ks. And, you know, so there's a little bit of ego for sure, but it's controlled ego. It's just, it's not about running faster or any of that sort of stuff. Whereas, but it is still in your mind, even though I try not to let it worry me and I'm happy running slow when you're feeling good, it still jumps into your head a little bit. Um, so to control it, I think when I had the fatigue in my early twenties, that was when I first realized that I was just happy if I could just get out there and just feel good on the day. And I didn't care that I got dropped in training and I knew that it didn't really matter about training. If my goal was to do well in a race, um, you know, without fully understanding what I was doing, I knew that I couldn't push my body. It just wouldn't let me do that back and, and back up day after day. So I, the fatigue was good in a sense that it really taught me ego. And that's what, as I mentioned earlier, paid off in 2012 was just taking that, turning that weakness into my strength of acknowledging that I couldn't do as much of others or as fast as others in training. But that then gave me confidence and I used it that way. Um, so yeah, it, it is a really tricky time for, for ego um, to be involved and, and make people be doing more than they should or, or too hard. Um, especially, you know, yeah, I see, I see the guys, I see the other guys like, you know, Lionel out there, you know, two, two weeks out from Kona doing massive reps in Kona, um, like almost sub three minute kilometers, pretty much in the heat of Hawaii. And he believes that that was with the training that he needed to do, but you know, he's also telling everyone about it, which is making him push harder, which is driving him to push this whole no limits and to push this speed and to show everyone how fit he is and that he's faster than he was a year ago and all of these stuff. Maybe ego's playing into a big part of that, but that whole session was just a massive detrainer of his aerobic capacity, which is like the only thing you need for Kona. You don't need any top end in Kona. Uh, yeah, so yeah, there's ego is... It's a great, great one to bring up. And um, yeah, there's so many different facets to it. Um, but yeah, the guy that I coached and, and trained Ego out of, he then went into ultras, making wrong turns in ultras, like, you know, like literally going down the wrong path for a while, but then realizing it that, oh, when he started to come back, he would be really annoyed and upset, but then he would realize it was Ego, realize that he didn't need to make up that time immediately. and he enjoyed the process of these ultras. He's um, something he, he did without me telling him, but I do it as well is when you're out running, you end up high-fiving plants and stuff. You're like, kind of like you're in this little <laughs> space of bliss where you like high five the bushes as they, and you're just in your own little world of like enjoying it. It doesn't matter if you're coming last or first, you don't care everything. It's the same experience because you're so present. Um, and so he ended up just totally changing how he felt in work, in, home life and in his running he now just found it like pure joy and um the experience of the of the races that he did was so much better he um kept improving as well uh aerobically but the mindset shift that he had and this is like what everyone can do and, and what i'm constantly working on as well is to be less ego less identity around everything anything that we do once you attach identity to, oh, I'm, I'm the person that runs every day, or I'm the person that does this many kilometers per week, um, you know, that's when ego really gets louder and louder and louder. And I do really do check myself for that. <laughs> um, and I, everyone has to, it'll never stop being there. You will never not have to stop checking yourself to about your ego. Yeah, such a powerful message and like a message I really love because everything you're saying there is is only to help people and will only benefit people. But it's a really, like you said, it's a really tough time to um, to maybe have those conversations with yourself and, and, and ask yourself like the, the hard questions of, of what, what is the reason why I'm actually doing this and, and what is my actual motivation to do this and, and is it actually benefiting me or is it for 
is it is it for is it is it based on ego and, and that sort of thing and and it is something that really can hinder your your training and and your performance and 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 even like you're talking about your day-to-day life um so it's a, it's like a it's a really powerful message you hit it there the question that you said there is why am i actually doing this and that that's the best question anyone can ask if you want to feel better at the end of the session if you want to be happier if you want to be more present you know, a lot of people are sitting there doing their meditation while doing nothing sitting in a chair. And I couldn't think of anything worse to do. I don't, I don't recommend that for, for, well, I've never recommended it. I think there's much better ways to do meditation. One of which is practicing being present while exercising. Um, and so ask why do you, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, are you going out there to exercise for your health? Are you going out there to exercise for adventure? Um, are you going there to exercise for socializing? you know, all of those things, you know, you need a priority and a goal so that you don't end up just chasing ego and no side of any goal whatsoever. Um, also, just to, to sort of uh, go back over, I actually, as soon as you said it, I've never thought about this in my life until you said it, but when you're out on long runs or easy runs or whatever and you're feeling your best, you might be with someone and you're just having fun, um, it doesn't feel hard, it feels easy, I have literally like when there's like a little branch popping off on the side of the road, you hit it with your hand and I'd never recognize that I've done that. But I was literally just in my head picturing me and one of my mates, Dan, who, who did quite a lot of really easy running together, long, easy runs out in the bushes of Ballarat, um, Steve Monaghetti territory. Um, Some of the best and funnest runs I've ever been on where we're just chatting easy that, like you've said, it's very little to no anaerobic uh, effort in it, which is something I hadn't even really you know, thought about or recognize. And we both like would hit branches when we run past them. So maybe that's the sign that you're running easy is that if you see a branch, you want to sort of give it a yeah, little You want to high five it. You want to give yourself a little <laughs> high five and be like, yeah, you got this. Like, you know, yeah, just that little confidence hit and that little, uh, and I think there's something. And, and again, coming back to flow state, you even just touching the the branches and that when you're so present and you're feeling that flow, it's almost like the more feedback you get into your system, your system just works even better. It's like, you know, you're on, you're on drugs or something. You're so you feel the branches and that just that sensory difference <laughs> yeah. is enough to be like, Oh, that that's a sensory input that I am, am enjoying. It can be the same, like, um, you know, that's, that's why, you know, just tasting something sweet may not even be because you need any sugars, but just tasting something that you enjoy hits that dopamine. Um, and th- a thinking a thought of something that you're grateful about gives you energy. So there's an incredible whole, you know, so many layers to how our body works when we um, kind of let it, let it do its thing and open up the doors to that, you know, getting close to that flow state, which is just being present. Yeah. I've never been like a guy who really thinks about this sort of stuff, but geez, you've got me thinking and, uh, and I like <laughs> it. This has been like one of the more thought provoking and, and, um, and, and like conversations that's, that's made me want to sort of dive a bit inward and just think about some things. So, you know, I actually on a personal note, really want to thank you for, for having this conversation with me because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's made me think about a lot and, and maybe it's actually sort of like made me recognize some things and, and reshape the way I think about some things that I'm actually pretty excited to go away and, and yeah, just think about and, 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 and maybe learn and, and, and try some things, um, so yeah, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. Awesome, good to hear it. Um, but yeah, I reckon it's like a pretty good note to wrap on to wrap up on too, because that was, yeah, like that was literally one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. Um, yeah, probably too, and, probably too, um, too in depth in parts for some, but that's cool. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone would think that. Like, it, like the everything you said makes made sense, and and I could relate, and and a lot of those things resonated with me, and I'm. I'm one of the furthest people who would sort of generally have a conversation like that. I'm sort of a bit more, I don't know, I maybe don't think about things that quite that deeply very often, but <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Um, oh, maybe you'll go and, for and a run without your watch and you'll be, you know, practicing meditation while you're out running next. Yeah, I already don't <laughs> upload to Strava very often. I'm a bit, because I, I am, I'm like, I can so quickly just fall into ego traps and I, I know that about myself. Um, and so I try to avoid that as best as best as I can. Oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to recognize. But then if there's no input to overcome, then you're not really training yourself to be any better. 
You get what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I get what if you're you, saying. If you put it on Strava, but you practice ignoring the whole, every time ego gets a bit louder, you've got to work to overcome it. Well, then you get mm. better and better at it. But if there's no input coming in and you're just sitting like a, like you're meditating, sitting there on the chair doing nothing, if there's, if there's no input for your brain to overcome or your body to overcome any tension, well, you're not training yourself to overcome tension. Does that make sense? Yeah. That does make sense. Again, like oh, okay. you just ma- <laughs> you're just making me think too much. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not about going around doing slow jogs all the time and never having any stressful input. It's about finding that tipping point and and touching that tipping point, learning to overcome yep. it, and then and then yeah, that's where you get better. Ment- that's where the mindset um, practice really happens. When when your ego really says, oh, don't stop now because this is a really good average and it'll look great on ego. That's the point when you stop for a drink of water and you don't stop your watch on purpose so that yeah. your average will drop and you will be thinking, oh my God, people are going to wonder what I'm doing. That's where you practice it. That's when you get really good at the mindset uh, strength training. You know what like probably the funniest or like weirdest part about this is that you're a guy who's, you know, you've won like the Ironman World Championships, about as big an endurance sporting event as it gets. And you're giving advice to on this topic to people who, you know, um, uh, are, are going for jogs. Yeah, yeah like, well, but even, even maybe less than that, like don't even compete, just train. And like, it's so it's really for nothing other than like they're doing it for self. They're like, they're, they're training for themselves because they want to be better or feel better or be fitter or skinnier or whatever the reason is. Um, but they still have these massive egos around it, myself included. Yeah. And, and I'm getting advice from a, an Ironman world champion. Yeah. It's, well, quite, it's quite yeah. bizarre. It's funny. It's like my wife, Jamie, she'll be the one that always points out that the pro athletes have the least ego kind of thing. The ones here in Noosa that she'll train around a heap of pro athletes in the pool and running and everything with other pro athletes and retired pro athletes. And they've got the smallest egos, whereas it's mostly the age group athletes that are you know, ego's a bit out of control. Yeah. There's something in that. I'm just not sure what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll right, leave it mate. at that then. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks again for jumping on, mate. What a chat. That was uh, when it, that was more than I expected. I, I just thought we'd chat about your, your training and your racing, but yeah, it's actually we've gone down a bit of a journey and, and I'm really thankful for it. Um, but but also great to hear about about everything, about your, your performance in Kona, your training, your, you know, your mindset stuff, you know, all your philosophies. It was, yeah, bloody fascinating. And um, and, and I'm really, really grateful for, for you jumping on and having the chat. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for taking me back there. That was good. And uh, we'll have to we'll have to keep tabs on and, and see what happens later in this year and, and if you do end up in Kona and, and how Cairns goes and that sort of thing and, and maybe get you back on for a bit of an update. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully. All right, that's my motivation then. <laughs> just yes, to be back. Get back. Just if I do back. well, I'll get back on the podcast. <laughs> that's that's my motivation. All right. Yeah, but if you do it badly, we don't want you here. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Everything's got yeah. consequences. Yeah. <laughs> No, not the case at all. Anyway. Uh, Yeah, have, have a good day, mate. Thanks again. Thanks, Jack. Cheers.